We want to conclude our study of Ezekiel's visions by picking up where we left off last week, asking when and how is Ezekiel's vision about the glory of the Lord returning in chapter 43 fulfilled? Let's read to refresh our memories. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, chapters 8 through 11, and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River, chapter 1, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. For a few minutes, we want to think about all the New Testament passages that associate God's glory with Christ. This glory, the true glory of God, was revealed in Jesus Christ, but as we're going to see in a strange and unexpected way. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, glory is primarily messianic. You remember Matthew 1.23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What is the glory of God? The physical manifestation of his presence. In Luke chapter 2, at Christ's birth, the glory of the Lord shines around the angels. And when he comes to the earthly temple, God's presence was evident as never before. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. It's very interesting. Jesus, whose glory is hailed in the temple here by Simeon, is not glorified in the temple, but rather his glory is previewed at a mountain far from Jerusalem, the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, probably Mount Hermon. His own glory appears while he prays to the Father. As he was praying, his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. Moses and Elijah. Why these two men? If you said lawn prophets, you get a B. 
There's something more significant going on here. Of all the prophets through a millennium of Israel's history, only two had stood in the presence of the glory of God. Moses in Exodus 33 and Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Both of them on Mount Sinai. Both would yet behold the glory of God and hear his voice at another time and on another mountain. There the splendor of God enveloped Jesus, the Son of God, and the two prophets stood again in that presence when Christ was transfigured before them. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. This is an important passage that ties in with our Ezekiel 8 through 11 passage and the incremental departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple. We're actually starting at chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Remember, in the intertestamental period, Herod refurbishes that second temple, that drab one that the exiles, the, re the returnees built when they returned to Jerusalem in 516 BC. Herod was an architectural buff, and his refurbishing was a partial fulfillment of that prophecy in Haggai 2 about the glory of this temple being greater than the glory of Solomon's temple, but only a partial fulfillment. Now back to chapter 23, starting at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus laments, Jerusalem's history of hard-heartedness towards the prophets and her refusal to come to him. He then prophesies the destruction of the temple. He says to the disciples, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And then where does Jesus move? Look at verse 3. He moves east to the Mount of Olives. Once more, the glory of the Lord has departed from the temple to the Mount of Olives, leaving behind a magnificent but doomed structure. What's the point? The point is that the indestructible temple is the presence of God in glory with his people in the person of Jesus. In the presence of Christ himself lay the meaning of the temple symbolism. As Ed Clowney puts it, Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. The tabernacle, Solomon's temple, the second temple in the Old Testament, Hebrews chapters eight and nine tell us they were all merely shadows and copies of the prior heavenly realities. 
Jesus, the true temple, has come. And so the picture painted here in Ezekiel's final vision, using images that Ezekiel's contemporaries would understand and appreciate, is nothing less than a picture of Jesus himself. That's the Christological fulfillment of Ezekiel 40 to 48. Jesus is the true temple. We read in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The Greek that word there that we translate dwelling really means tabernacled. It comes from the same Hebrew root as the word for tabernacle. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And neither his opponents nor his disciples had a clue what he was talking about. But John quietly comments, after he was raised from the dead, then his disciples remembered and they believed the scriptures. Ezekiel's vision, in addition to having a Christological fulfillment, is also a picture of us, the New Testament church, united to Christ. We are the temple, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this will all be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes again and everything that he won in principle at his first coming is consummated. That's the eschatological fulfillment of these chapters in Revelation 21 and 22. So the question becomes, where's the glory of God today? It's in jars of clay. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Christ's glory, as we've seen, was hailed in the temple, previewed in the transfiguration, it was veiled at his crucifixion, and attained at his resurrection. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Christ says to Cleopas and his companion, did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter glory? Notice the order, suffer and then glory. Those of us who've taken Psych 101 probably had to do a word association experiment with our family or friends. So let's, let's do a thought experiment. Let's say we had the disciple John, the writer of the fourth gospel in front of us. And we say, John, I'm going to give you a word association test. And we give him the words. We say, John, just blurt out whatever you associate with what I say. And we say, glory of God. Based on his gospel, I think John's immediate response would be suffering. We might be tempted to say, wait a minute, John, I don't think you quite caught 
what I was asking. Glory of God. And I think he'd say again, suffering. What possibly could be the connection between God's glory and suffering? Dear friends, only God's wisdom, as revealed in Scripture, can help us connect these two words and the realities they express. In particular, we can't escape the gospel link between glory and crucifixion. It's not simply in the miracles that Jesus performed that his glory is revealed, but John, especially in the fourth gospel, connects glory with the cross. Repeatedly, Jesus' death by crucifixion is referred to by John as his glorification. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, John 7. Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, John 13. The relationship in the Gospel of John between glory and suffering. So, where are the glory, where's this glory today? We need to learn how to recognize Christ's glory and what he's doing in the church today. And that same glory cross suffering paradox that was present in Jesus' life exists for us, the church. You know, it's so easy to get impatient. Sometimes I want Jesus to do more spectacular things. I wish for a dramatic breaking in of God's glory in such a way that it will impress and overwhelm the unbelieving world with his mighty display of power. Like I think after Jesus rose from the dead, why didn't he take just two seconds and go visit Herod while he was shaven and say, I'm back, right? I want that big splash. And that day will come, but it's not yet. We live in this in-between time, this already not yet period in which it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The expectation is that we will share in the glory of the world to come. This is the paradox of the present life of Christians. Dying to self, weakness, and glory together in our present state of affairs. We've been given this glory, as we've noticed, but it's in jars of clay. The fact is that it's in our weakness that Christ's glory is revealed. On one level, the glory of God is in our midst, and yet sin persists. On another deeper level, the glory of God is manifested in the weakness of his people. That is, when Christians imitate Christ in self-giving love and humility, relying on the powers of the Word and Holy Spirit, to effect change, we appear weak in human terms, and yet paradoxically, the kingdom of God advances through these weak means, displaying God's power and glory. The present glorification of the church, paralleling the experience of Jesus before his resurrection, is veiled by suffering and adversity. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. The way to the glory of heaven is the glory of the cross. This was true for Jesus, and it's no less true of those who would follow him. The light and momentary troubles involved in renewal of glory in the present 
are producing an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In Hebrews 2, verse 9, we read, Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. All this so that he could bring many sons to glory. Dear friends, this is the way of following Christ. Do I want to be counted among this group in which glory and suffering are connected?